0: Man, thank you for joining us on not just any other episode of Why Theory, but a special episode of Why Theory. As always, I am your host, Ryan Engley, joined, as always, by co-host Todd McGowan. But you know what? I'm not even going to say hi to this guy, because today I want to say hi to Mari Rudy, who really, really graciously and gratefully is uh, joining us today uh, to talk. Uh, Thank you so much, Mari.
1: Thank you for inviting me. Why Theory? I mean, how could I refuse?
0: (laughs) I it would be, you'd have to explain yourself to somebody, I think. I think that, that, that you get lost. To God. I think, I think that's yeah. correct, yeah. Oh, uh,
1: I, the, my inability to refuse theory. Um, well, just that theory is my life, and that's what I've done my entire career. And whenever anyone uh, says theory, it's like, a, I don't know, it's like a, I'm being seduced. Um, so I, there's no way I can say no to it, basically.
0: Excellent. So that's the so that is the the pure seductive power Todd, of this thing that we we've we've, uh, we've made. But really, how are you doing, buddy? You doing good today?
2: I'm I'm doing fine. I'm I'm actually really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, me today. too.
0: So, um let's start. Um I'm going to start by asking uh, Mari a question. If uh, we have talked about her um extensively actually, um uh two different times, uh once uh, all the way back in the first um Isn't this crazy to say, Todd? Like the first year of the podcast.
2: First year of the podcast, (laughs) that's
0: right. (laughs) When uh, we did uh, how to start, uh, or sorry, where to start episodes, and we did um, kind of a survey of uh, uh, major psychoanalytic thinkers, and we talked about Mari and her work uh, there, and we also did um, last year um, a full episode on her book, uh, Penis Envy and Other Bad Feelings, and um, just personally, Mari, so you and Todd are friends, but you and I haven't uh, spoken super much, and just for for the listeners, and just uh, so you knew, know where um, I'm coming from on this. Um, I find the way, way that you write uh, inspiring, and I think it is the way that we try to do things on this podcast, which is to take these things that seem arcane and very, very difficult, and um, make them not just um, explicable, but to iterate upon them, and I think you do that in really well in all your work. And I think um, anyway, so we're really happy to have you here because I think we're all in the same kind of uh, philosophical headspace um, on this. And so anyway, I'm not going to ask you to respond to me gushing over your writing. What I'm going to (laughs) ask instead, because um, we are here to have a conversation about um, feminism from a psychoanalytic perspective and specifically where you come at from this, and I think this is interesting. You say this in the beginning of uh, of Penis Envy, that uh, the Penis Envy book, that coming from Finland to America is noticeable. How we are hung up on gender in a way that to you is weird and fetishistic, <laughs> and so I wonder how 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 And which I don't, which I don't uh, disagree with. Um, so, but how much of of that, just like that experience. Um, forms how you come at um, feminism from a psychoanalytic perspective, and just come at feminism uh, in the from a contemporary perspective today.
1: Well, I don't think that I would be a feminist if I had stayed in Finland. Um, <laughs> there's <laughs> really no no reason to be a feminist in that country because people don't think in in terms of gender. So when I arrived in the U.S., I was just shocked by how incredibly fixated people were on uh, gender differences. You know, women do this and men do that and women are like this and women men are like this. And I just, I felt, I really just felt like this was a psychotic way of thinking about the world. <laughs> I thought I, I, uh, It was the biggest culture shock. I felt like um, I assimilated into American culture very quickly. I loved mm. the country. I became very... Americanized quickly, but this was the one kind of kernel of the culture that I resisted from the beginning. Um, and so I, I was a feminist first before I encountered psychoanalysis, and then I had to obviously reconcile those two um, sometimes seemingly opposed ways of thinking, but I was fortunately in a theoretical program in graduate school that had a lot of feminist psychoanalytic thinkers. So I was very early on able to not think of these two things as uh, mutually exclusive, but rather uh, theoretical approaches that can enrich each other. And so for me, um, I think I I can think psychoanalytically without being a feminist, but I can't really be a feminist without thinking psychoanalytically. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, yeah. Wow. I want to pick up on that, but I first want to say that this is what I love about Mari, that most people who have gone to Harvard managed to say something like, well, when I was living in Cambridge, blah, blah, blah. But she had every reason to say that when I was at Harvard in graduate school, and she just managed not to say it at all. And so I, I just really, really appreciate that. I think that's what I, that just the kernel of her. Egalitarianism. When I was and,
0: in but, uh, grad school in Boston, <laughs> well, not in Boston, but nearby, anyway. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said that to me in my lifetime. So, but I, I wanna, I wanna focus on this. So, so you think that I, I agree with this? That, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure about the if that it works. That maybe I would think, I or, will or argue even that it works both ways. But you think that feminism has to be psychoanalytically inflected.
1: Not for everyone. I'm just saying that for me, it's very, yeah, for for me, it's very difficult to think about feminism outside of psychoanalysis. Um, And this just has to do with the fact that uh, I think feminism needs an understanding of uh, psychoanalysis uh, um, in terms of the unconscious, uh, the drives, and a certain type of deconstruction of gender that psychoanalysis has actually been very good at. I mean, a lot of uh, there are a lot of feminists in this world who accuse psychoanalysis of being anti-feminist and and kind of perpetuating archaic notions of gender. But for me psychoanalysis is the theoretical discourse, even more so than, say, deconstruction. It's the theoretical discourse particularly Lacanian psychoanalysis that that undoes the binary of, binarism of gender that I really hate so much. So for me, psychoanalysis is um, not about, well, obviously obviously it's about equality of men and women, but mostly for me, psychoanalysis is about uh, undoing the binary, the gender binary to begin with. I have always just hated that binary, and that's why I started my book by saying, you know, when I came to the U.S., this was really a problem for me because I I just couldn't understand why people were so fixated on this binary, which I have come to really loathe. And I feel that psychoanalysis is the theoretical discourse that gives me the best tools for taking apart that binary.
0: I think if I could just pick up there and ask you to unpack that a little bit, because I think that's a common accusation against psychoanalysis, which is that it's locked into men and women that actually this the on the other side uh people critique it for holding on to um the like distinctions be- between men and women as a way of advancing its theory now that's certainly not it's certainly not everybody a lot of people have written like otherwise i think like we talk about this that it's like it designates masculine and feminine positions it's not it's, it's not about gender specifically but um how do you come at that question how how do you answer that charge <laughs>
1: Uh, so the uh, charge about the phallocentrism of uh, psychoanalysis and, yes. and, let's say, yeah. you know, Lacanian uh, analysis specifically. Um, well, first of all, when it comes to Lacan, I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about, about the guy, one of the many things I love about Lacan is the fact that he is the antithesis of phallocentrism. I mean, if any, I mean anyone who uh, claims otherwise hasn't really read enough of his work, uh, this is always my uh, my kind of comeback I get really frustrated with feminists who claim that he's fallocentric because I understand right away that they just haven't read enough like they haven't for instance read his seminar on anxiety, seminar 10 uh, where it is so clear that he is uh, undoing the whole fallocentric way of thinking and basically mocking, making fun of this way of thinking uh, making, f- making fun of the phallus, all of that but then on I guess on a deeper level um what psychoanalysis done is to complicate identity to such a degree that it becomes difficult for me to think in terms of gender differences specifically it it just it it just takes identity apart in such a fundamental way that it makes no sense um for me to, to think about. You know, women this, men that, because there are so many Mm -hmm. components to identity um, that gender is just like one tiny little part of the, the, you know, the story. And, and uh, a lot of that story has been culturally imposed on us. Some of it is unconscious and most of it, most of it is just completely useless uh, as far as I'm concerned.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I yeah, I really like that. I think it's I think that that distinction between I think what you said about identity is really great. And I think that distinction between subjectivity and identity that psychoanalysis makes is really, I mean, d- I think that's a really important gesture for in the direction of feminism, right? Like that way of seeing how all these all these different ideas of identity, like there all these different things you have about identity are 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 really just a variety of social, so- cultural, Positions that you you're taking up, and, and that that you're really your subjectivity is something that's distinct from that.
1: Yeah, how would, can you uh, elaborate on that? I would uh, can you um, can you explain how you distinguish between subjectivity and identity?
2: Yeah, so I guess for me, subjectivity is what do, is 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 I don't know. I mean, I mean this is going to be be too facile of a way to, to distinguish, but I would distinguish maybe between who and what. Like the identity is is all the what you are and the subjectivity is the who and then it and then so i would say it's a fundamental question like it's the so i think it's much more identified with this fundamental problem that animates you and and in a way identity is a series of answers that you try to give to that fundamental problem and i kind of think in the same way like feminism is a is a is a confrontation with that fundamental problem of society, then patriarchy is the one, is this, of course, it, it has all, it's the answer. It proposes itself as the answer. So I guess that's how I, I see that. Okay, great.
1: Uh, yeah. No, so one of the things that um, my type of feminism definitely does is to try to demolish the entire notion of identity, the the notion of who. Uh, <laughs> I mean, and there are so many different kinds of feminists, obviously, and I, I, I fall into the kind of uh, post-structuralist slash Lacanian feminist category, for whom, um, (laughs) interesting that I said whom, Uh, for for whom the notion of a who, uh, the notion of some sort of a unitary identity is completely nonsensical. And when you go into subjectivity, uh, the what to, I guess I would free associate. Say- uh, it's reversed. I, I'm
2: sorry. I just, I wasn't clear. I was unclear. Like I thought the who would be subjectivity and then what would be the, all the different kinds of. Oh,
1: ideas. okay. Wait, say it again. Uh, what would be all the different okay. kind of identities that I imposed on you and
2: a who, who. Right. Like that. And, and who is this question of subjectivity itself? That would be my way of.
0: I want to muddy the waters even further. <laughs> okay. Got it. <laughs> because I think <laughs> I, I, cause I really like this. Um, I and and I'm and Mari. I think I don't know. Maybe anticipating what you're going to say. I think, or, or I think both of you would agree to this. I think that where psychoanalysis and and I like this what but and and who distinction is that when we, when we are born, when we come into uh, being through language, we are a what before we are a who, and I think that what psychoanalysis enables us to do is to focus on that exact tension, and, and it makes and it makes it hard. You are all what you're you're kind of constantly in this position of trying to navigate whether you are one or the other, and I and I and I think that's what. Um what I think that's what what psychoanalysis um uh, gets at and 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 when when it talks about positions, I think that's another way of thinking about it so i want so that's that's my muddying of the waters on this no, that's really great
1: and I mean I think that I can say exactly what i said uh even with Todd's reversal because i mean ultimately it comes down to an attempt to domesticate the what under uh different types of uh categories of who and so when I said that um i, I mean I didn't mis- misunderstand it, but what when I said that uh, oh, okay. uh, w- okay. but when I said that you know my kind of feminism is trying to get away from an understanding of uh, of of um who you are um I guess what I meant was um that it's, it's trying to get away from the different ways in which your whatness is being domesticated under a certain understanding of who ness. Uh, but okay, so subjectivity, who, uh, right? That that is your position. That's a-
2: that was what I I mean I, I I maybe I I I'm willing to like give that that maybe I chose the wrong interrogative <laughs> words. Like I but I, I guess I, I guess my idea was that subjectivity is a question. Question an identity a question like a questioning a problem and then identity would be a kind of an answer and that's and those answers are always ways of arresting the question and 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 stopping up the problem i guess that's what that that would be my okay that's
1: exactly what i was trying to say that you know you you begin with this um you know let's let's say okay let's make this more concrete like let's say subjectivity um uh, from a Lacanian like, perspective, uh, would be connected to something like the symptom or your fundamental fantasy um, uh, and and then you have social attempts to make you answer and make you explain that that fundamental fantasy of yours uh, make you explain your symptom. And th- that's when you get all these, you know, the you are this, you are that, you are a woman, you are a man, you are you have to be this way, you have to be that way. Uh so there's an imposition of identity on you, um, that may have nothing to do with the whatness uh <laughs> Oh, who knows? I don't at this point, I don't even know. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah, sorry. I mean, I shouldn't have introduced those those terms because it just confuses things. But, but I, I I think we're, I don't, I don't think we disagree. But I think I really like that, that that this distinction between like what, like what, I, and I think it's, you're right to point to Santome as the, as this thing that's your own way of structuring a problem, and then there there's identity as an answer. And I think you're also really right to say that gender is one of the main ways that we have of arresting that problem of subjectivity, it seems.
1: Exactly. So uh, uh, the imposition of gender is one way of turning you into a socially intel- intelligible identity category i mean you could say a socially intelligible subject if you if you were using the word subject as equivalent to identity which is what a lot of people do uh, in critical theory so uh, gender is one way to fix you into a specific type of identity position and that's my fundamental problem with it. And that's what I think psychoanalysis is really good at opposing in the sense that it it introduces these uh, different ways of thinking about um, your who ness, your your fundamental, you know <laughs> what it is that makes you you, uh, your sentomio or, or your unconscious or whatever it is that makes you, makes you who you are. Um, on a on a yes, singular, the singular, yeah, the immortal, yeah, within, the singular right? creature yeah. rather than the socially uh, constructed creature. So that that's what I was getting at, trying to get at.
0: I have a question. So I, I don't know if this is too early of a jump maybe not to uh, to talk specifically about film but i think that like what's happened in our conversation i mean i think that so far that is very very important and sort of vital to the way that uh psycho psychoanalysis and and feminism uh, understood through psychoanalysis has been understood is uh, on this this notion of um, identification and it does of course go back to um laura mulvey visual pleasure and narrative cinema and what is kind of at work there is this notion that one can identify with what's on, on the screen. And I think that's like, I don't think any of us agree with that position. It's a very, and I think even, I think even people who say that they do agree with that position don't really agree because it means that if you say that, that means that films do cause violence. If you can make it part of your identity, it means video games cause violence. It's a part of your identity that there, that that there's no, problem for just incorporating images that you see into like into who you are there's like there's there's no uh there's no filter or point of mediation and i think that like we all kind of we all reject that um position but i think that um how do you see that in film theory and in, in the way that uh that your work has responded to film theory that the how does it how has it worked against this question of identity because i think that's a a big one i think particularly like feminism and in in images especially in like i don't know screen culture and film theory that like the idea of identity is uh is pretty big and um this notion of subjectivity that like we're proffering here and that i know that you've like pursued in your in your other work um has pushed against that a lot so how how has that played out for you and like what um what Tensions have you seen specifically within film theory uh, as it regards um, identity and, and feminism?
1: Wow, that's a big question. And I, I, I will preface that by saying that I don't consider myself an expert on film or film theory, even though I've written about it and taught it uh, quite a bit. But um, Well, that's just like how you didn't say you went to Harvard. So I think that's <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so because i don't be, because i don't believe in stable identities uh it's also impossible for me to believe in something like identifying uh some sort of a straightforward identification with a character in uh in a movie or a television series or something like that um so you referenced mulvey uh who is of course famous for the theorization of the male gaze um and I guess okay. So let me ask you this: Why did you bring in Malvi specifically? I mean, the male gaze is all about um, the objectification of the female form on the sc- mm-hmm. on the screen, and uh, I mean, obviously, she's also arguing that that the that female spectators tend to identify with the beautiful fetishized woman on the screen whereas uh men, to, men get to identify with the heroic uh figure who is saving the the woman and all of that um uh and on some level well
0: i bring i just i bring her up because i just bring her up because it's all it's like um so when so Todd and I who do like we do teach like film classes and whenever we we do um uh, f- uh film theory and 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 feminist film theory and uh it's it's always this question, which is do you teach that essay or not because there, and it's very very famous and very well known and it informs so much, but it's also like there's so much that is just pushing back. So just from a pedagogical standpoint, it's like do you spend the time to make sure that every, that students understand what she's saying. And then you spend the next three weeks being like, okay, here's a bunch of people from, you know, from, from bell hooks to, to Jennifer Friedlander who are pushing back against like, uh, what, what she's saying for very specific reasons. And also she doesn't like, while also maintaining that there is of course, like misogyny and sexism in Hollywood, like it's just anyway. So it's a, it's one of these, I think it's, um, it's it's an essay that uh, endures because it needs to be, I think, um, contended with. And there are things that she says in in that essay that have become uh, doxa. I think yeah. that have have re- really taken hold in, uh, in 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 public discourse. And and I, so that's what, that's why I bring her up because it's there. Um, because yeah, her. I mean, her position is that the the male gaze castrates the the female subject. And I think there are just a lot of different ways of. Uh, uh, I mean the. the Todd uh, Todd's has uh, this great retranslation. Well, actually, it's a proper translation of what Lacan says in uh, seminar eleven about the gaze, which is um, the picture is in my eye, but I am in the picture, and that's the most important. I sp- like probably the I, I don't know. A co- one could argue most important thing Lacan ever said because his point is there is no position of mastery over the image or the visual field that you are always implicated in the thing that you're seeing, whether you're aware of that or not. And I think um, anyway. So. Um, I think we've gotten far away from my question, mm-hmm. but that had ten, that <laughs> that happens. Uh, so anyway, I'm um yeah, just how um how how do, <laughs> how does approaching identification and like visual culture? I guess I'll make make the question more broadly. You don't have to contend with Mulvey.
1: No, I mean uh, I do want to say about Mulvey um, one thing, uh, which is that I, I do teach that uh, essay quite regularly, and uh, one of the things that is interesting about it is that. It really, and, and this is the, the this is kind of the pedagogical dilemma that you're referring to in some ways. Uh, it really speaks to female students. Uh, they tend to uh, they tend to be they tend to be very taken by the idea of the of the male gaze and the objectification of the women and uh, how that's problematic and all of that. Uh, and so yeah, then then you do have to spend the next three weeks kind of complicating that complicating complicating that picture, Um, at the same time, it's like uh, she, uh, already in the 70s, she tapped onto something that is, that feels, somehow feels relevant to contemporary, young contemporary Mm -hmm. female, quote-unquote, identity, and now I say identity really consciously, I mean the kind of culturally constructed notion of femininity, uh, how they understand themselves, Um, and how society has taught them to understand themselves. So very much not the symptom, uh, you know, this is who I am on a a fundamental level, but, you know, this is how I I identify myself. And part of that identification definitely has something to do with the idea that you are uh, a victim uh, of the so-called male gaze. And um, so then uh, that the process of trying to complicate that narrative becomes actually very difficult because because they are very easily, very fast uh, connected to that uh, idea. Um, it, it's very seductive. So how do you then, uh, how do you, I mean, I, I guess um, if we're going to keep this conversational, I mean, how do you <laughs> then go on to say, well, actually it's more complicated than that? are um, you are in the picture yourself
0: um well I think that for for me specifically if you're asking me I don't know what what Todd's an, uh, answer to this is, is is I think the um a word that does not appear I don't think in that essay but I but I actually take to be the whole ball game is power
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think that for me is where I start to where i i start to, to to try to mount the pushback um like pedagogically and i think theoretically speaking because what if you imagine i always think or this as something i say to students that like if you imagine power to be complete and gapless and and non-lacking you have done it a massive favor <laughs> you, you know you, like like you you have you have a priori decided there is no site of rupture that all you can do, I've said this about, uh, I've, I've said this before in this podcast, that like basically all you can do is learn about how screwed you are. And so you're exchanging this kind of like knowledge is power sort of thing to for, for any kind of like social or like political like radicality. So it's just you keep the structure the way that it is so you can understand how screwed you are, but you don't push back against it. And I, I kind of think that's, um that's w- what Mulvey's argument like what that's kind of she like backs herself into that corner you know and that's why she ha- ends up making this this film uh where the camera just moves on its own and somehow that makes it not phallic according to how she thought about it I, I you know I I don't know so um so I think that, that that's that that's for me that's where I start is is that like it it's if you imagine if you imagine power to, to be coming from like a, 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 a unary place, and it to be like uh like complete and all, all all we can be and are are sort of like victims under it, that it doesn't inscribe a way to push back, except for I think getting somehow outside of that system, and then I, and I don't I, that's a gesture that I don't I I don't think I buy. Um, I, I think that it it's, that for one of course the. There, you know, there is no big other. The the other is not complete. The other is just like you are. It is it is lacking, and 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 that that is where the uh, that is where the site of rupture has to be. Um, and uh, so that 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 for me is is how like pedagogically I I, I begin to kind of like um I don't know unbrick the kind of like perfect wall of the the male gaze that I think like uh Mulvey constructs in that. And again, it conflicts with one of the things that that you were saying, like where where it taps into is that like yes hollywood totally misogynist and racist like i mean like my god the thing with the emmys not a single black person on the hollywood foreign press association are you kidding me like so i so the it it's sort of like that theory maps onto this uh reality but what it does is it I, I think it has the unintended consequence of making it seem like like these systems are like perfect and in place like forever, and 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 that comes from this I think an untheorized notion of power that undergirds that essay in particular. But I've been talking for a while, and this is our show always, and you're not always on it, so I'm going to stop talking. Yeah. Okay.
1: No. Uh, what you said is. Uh, uh- I mean, you just articulated very beautifully what I would have said myself. Um, I would have, I, I, no, I, I would have, I would have probably articulated it more concretely, just keeping in terms, like keeping in mind that you know I'm uh, imagining myself talking to my students, uh, and so uh, what I would want to do uh, would be precisely that move of saying, look, uh, what you think of as heteropatriarchal power is not a seamless entity uh, and that what you think of as this overpowering male subjectivity is always already castrated and Mm. fragile and uh, at odds with itself and all of that. And that's why I started by saying that psychoanalysis gives me an opening to a certain type of feminism, which has to do with Um, uh, I I hesitate to use the word deconstruction because I know that uh, that's problematic in the Lacanian context but I'm just going to I think it works in the context of talking about gender binaries Uh, if the aim is to deconstruct the gender binary then there has to be an understanding that the quote unquote male side of that binary is not all, all powerful, it's not a matter of uh you know the all-powerful oppressor and the uh completely powerless uh victim that, that something much more complicated is going on and that you know if heteropatriarchy uh, patriarchy oppresses um uh women it also oppresses men, it, it oppresses everyone in different ways and uh, to different degrees, but it's not a matter of men versus women. And Malvi's essay feeds i mean uh, that's an early example but it, even it, you, you can think of a uh, much more recent examples of um this problematic this kind of a like a reversal of the binary so something like the recent book um leaning in um yeah yeah yeah. yeah, so where the the idea is you're basically just reversing the terms of the binary so Mm. now women are all powerful and or are more powerful than men are and that's great but that's actually not the feminist solution that i'm looking for i don't want i don't want you know um i don't want these identities um these these you know socially imposed whatnesses <laughs> um yeah. that that we all operate with i don 't want these to uh, congeal into these categories where it's you know us against them type of thinking and and uh so what you articulated about the the ruptures of power and all of that, I completely agree with you on uh, on all of that and and the one of the problems with mavi's essay is that it reinforces that. That binary, even though it's obviously trying to do something great for feminism, it does it in a way that kind of reinscribes the the woman as the victim. And that is not to say that the woman is never a victim, like you just referred to Hollywood, and you know there are certain types of types of visual situations where that is the case. But it is also a model that um, so simplistically re-inscribes the very binary that I think that we should be deconstructing that it's not really ultimately helpful. But at the same time, it was written in the 70s. So you have to be a little bit forgiving. Mm.
2: <laughs> right. I mean, she didn't have access. We've talked about this before. She didn't have access to Seminar 11, right? So any her whole way of thinking about the gaze is informed by mirror stage and not by seminar 11. So that's a, I think you're right. Like forgiving is a good, is a good word. I I just, you know, it's interesting though, talking about that, that I wonder about this relationship between the feminism, like you practice it. And like, I think I try to practice it, that it's a feminism focused on desire, enjoyment, fantasy versus a feminism focused on power. And I wonder if, if if I think I I wonder what you would say about this because I think in a way you try to marry mm-hmm. those two but maybe I wonder if it's even possible to marry those two because it seems like I it seems like people are either talking on one side or they're talking on the other and it's I it's it's very it seems to me very difficult to bring those those two together I think you you know as I say I think you do a good job of it but I think people that were on the power side would find your books un what should I say? Like, like <laughs> disappointing maybe. And then, but, you know, and so I, cause I think you're, you're more on this side of of desire, fantasy, enjoyment, or, or, you know, the psychoanalytic side. So I I wonder if you think, do you think to yourself, like, is there a way to reconcile these two ways or, or can you talk about power from a psychoanalytic perspective? I, wonder?
1: I think only in so far as you're able to, uh, uh, to, um, do what what Ryan just suggested, namely, call attention to the ways in which power is uh, never ever seamless and and unitary and complete that power power has ruptures and gaps and uh, inconsistencies and failures built into its structure, and so um, if you understand power in that sense, which I take to be the psychoanalytic sense, then Uh, perhaps it is possible to combine it with certain types of uh, discussions of, say, enjoyment or desire or fantasy, where um, um, power does enter into, let's say, desire. I mean, power can enter into structures of desire without determining those structures. Uh, It can be a component of desire, and it uh, it can also very easily... Get reconfigured within uh, a specific encounter of desire, but it it could still be in the mix if it's understood in the kind of uh, sense that we're talking about, rather than in the kind of seamless ideological um, um, way that, I don't know, someone like Althusser would talk about it as in, you know, you're interpolated into the system and that's it and there's no escape and there's no alternative. Um, I think then it would be very hard to, if if you think if you think about power as a seamless ideological structure, or um, in the, even in the Foucauldian sense of like it's all over and you just can't escape it ever. If you think about it in those terms, then it becomes pretty hard to, to think about. Um, i mean think about it in the context of desire or enjoyment of fantasy because as soon as you start trying to combine that conception of power with say desire or enjoyment or fantasy, you automatically get into the you, you get in into these scenarios where uh your desire is always already politically incorrect or your enjoyment is always already uh you know self delusional or your fantasies are just wrong um, because you have bought into a certain type of power structure. And of course, if you're thinking psychoanalytically, uh, desire, enjoyment, and fantasy are, are all way more complicated than that, right?
2: Right, right. I, 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 inter- I, I love that answer. And I think, I, 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 as I was thinking about, it, I, I wonder if you would even say, do you think power is a problem? Like, I think, I, I mean, I think a lot, I think in today's, milieu, right? Like, I think the dominant position is power is the problem. It's not just a problem, it's the problem. And I wonder if from a psychoanalytic feminist perspective, if you think that's true, do you think it is a problem? Okay, so
1: are you asking me whether uh, the the theoretical way in which we think about power is a problem or whether power as a real-life phenomenon is a problem?
2: Power as a real-life phenomenon. Yeah, like, is is power, like, the problem? I mean, not even the problem, but is it, like, a central problem that we have to wrestle with and fight against, you know, like, like public enemy? Like, do we have to fight the power, or, or is power not really a problem in that way?
0: And then I want to ask the other question. Okay.
1: Wow. Okay, that that is a really tough question. I mean, if you if I say that power is not a problem, I'm gonna get a lot of hate hate mail. I mean, my <laughs> gosh, I mean, everyone in progressive uh, progressive critical theory um believe seems to believe that power is a is a problem and maybe even the problem. Um, right. So I hesitate to say that it's not part of the problem because. Um, there are too many sort of concrete real life uh, power differentials, and if you go, if you want to bring in someone like Butler and talk about the unequal dis- distribution of precariousness or vulnerability, for instance, it has something to do with power, uh, with socially delegated power. It has it's it's not about like power intrinsically, but you know who has who has who. Whom the symbolic order has given power to. Um, so it's. I don't think that you, I can completely um, uh, take it away out of the equation because um, uh, <laughs> I would basically be demolishing the entire theoretical edifice of contemporary theory. So how, if, you, if 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 you want to do that, how can I just ask you how would you do? What would you say <laughs> yourself?
2: Yeah, I, I think I would want to do that. and I think what I would say is I think power is just an epiphenomenon. Mm. right? Like, I think that what you're really, what the real problem is, is the enjoyment that, like, for instance, like the racist enjoyment, the sexist enjoyment, like those are the problem. And then power it manifests itself as this epiphenomenon. I also almost don't even think it necessarily matters so much. Like, if, if, like, it's 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 the way people handle their power, right? Like, like, I always think about this in terms of, like, when people say, well, sexual harassment is a problem about power. Well, they're not really, I don't think they really think that, because it's not, there's a lot of situations where one person has power over another, and there's no sexual harassment at all, like, right? I mean, that's why sexual harassment stands out, because it doesn't happen every single time. Right. So I, I almost think even the people who think it's about power aren't really that really what it's about is this illicit and maybe all enjoyment is in some sense illicit, but illicit enjoyment that's taking place at where someone is enjoying at the expense of someone else. And that's, I guess, to me, that's the phenomena. And then power is this epiphenomena uh, like at trans, like a translation of that almost. I guess that's what I would say. And so I know that puts me, as you said, like I'm really on the outskirts, and I. It's very anti foucault What I see is this like Foucauldian translation of it's what I would call a moralization of yeah, nature. yeah. And that I think that's the dominant that's the dominant position today. And I just think it just writes enjoyment out of the picture and reduces everything to power. And I would. I would want to flip it and say power is the epiphenomena; enjoyment is what's fine Okay,
1: now now it. I understand you. Uh, I, I I didn't I uh, when you asked the question, I didn't fully understand where you were coming from, but now I do. Uh, particularly because I've read a lot of your work. Um, I mean, if you think about uh, enjoyment as the, I guess the obscene underside of the law, um, then what you're absolutely right that power would be the uh, surface phenomenon, the epi- epiphenomenal whatever the word is um, that ultimately it comes down to um, who is enjoying at the expense of whom Um, but then the the way people understand that it's just really counterintuitive to think about suffering in the context of enjoyment Um, and so I think people go to the image of power because that fits well with an understanding of suffering. So if someone is suffering, it means that someone has power over them. Um, and I, I think that that is one reason that power has become such a central theme in contemporary theory. And obviously, Foucault. I, I know you disagree with Foucault and I actually agree with your disagreement uh, uh, <laughs> with Foucault, so <laughs> I understand where you're coming from, but I uh, I also understand why so many people have a hard time giving up the notion of power, because if you're trying to understand traumatization or suffering um, or like bad things happening to people, it's really hard to think about those things in, in the context of enjoyment, and it's easy to to say, oh, it's about power. It's about you know who has power in society.
2: I agree. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that it is easier, and I think it, that really, you know, that 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 it forms a nice matrix for understanding it, things. And I, I so I I agree. I, and I think that's why it's it's become the dominant thing. It's interesting that people think power is unconscious, right? Like mm. they it's like they feel like they're or when we understand power, we're getting beneath the surface, but I think it's more that power. I mean, just what I said. Power is on mm-hmm. the surface. It's
1: completely obvious. I mean, yeah. Right. 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 So right, there's like right. nothing to nothing to dig for. Um, I guess that was also even like, Eve Sedgwick already said that um, when you know in that essay, the famous famous essay um, where she was going after ideology critique, where she was kind of saying, well all this ideology critique is critiquing something that is completely on the surface and completely obvious to everyone.
0: Uh t- Ryan were you going? Oh say yeah, yeah, two things. Uh one, Elvis Presley was a hero to most, but he never meant shit to me. That's just one of the for <laughs> that uh, out there just to reference the public enemy song. But the second thing um about power um and I want to be careful about this because I'm uh I'm realizing as I've been thinking about this it potentially resembles a situation at the, at the place where I work, but I, so maybe I shouldn't have even called attention to that. But the, there is a thing, I say, I want to try to make this. There is a thing structurally where, um, someone, I'll put it this way. Someone who has a, a position to say something will say something that they know is objectionable, um, as a way of inviting backlash to make it seem as though the, they are the oppressed person in the situation, even though right. they are not coming actually from an oppressed position. And I think that happens all the time, and that's a way of like I think like one way of looking at that it, like is that like oh, it's actually like so you know I mean conservatives do this all the all the time on on Twitter is like the deliberately provoking. Uh, cancel culture so they can make it seem as though it's this like widespread oppressive force or whatever. Um, when it, it's, you know, I don't want to talk about Dr. Seuss today, but the, um, <laughs> but <laughs> the, what I think missed in that is that like there is this, um, like the, the enjoyment to Todd to go to your term that like it is, um, it's intrinsic and i would say it's i think people see like the the they see the power relation there first but it's the it's the enjoyment that is the the, the reason for and again I, I there there's a situation that i would love to talk about in specific detail but i can't um for for reasons but the um just to be more concrete about things, but just like like putting out there again something that you you know is objectionable that you know that that like people will not be on your side for that thing, but then it puts you in this seemingly weakened power position. Um, but you can claim to be like again the victim of this like gigantic kind of backlash. There is a tremendous amount of enjoyment in there, and I would say also power. But power is is the is the secondary thing. It's the it's the. Uh, Epiphenomenon right so it's the thing that's a, that's a, that's attached to enjoyment which I think is the primary mot- uh, motivational force and I think that this is this is a it's a dynamic that particularly in America that um, people on the mainstream left continue to fall into and they continue to like the way that you like like don't do not correct the obvious lies of the of conservative just make make the irrelevant don't co- don't don't cover them like don't just don't like T- trump's not on twitter and don't you feel like you're missing something you know like 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 there's something horrible happening and you just you don't know about it but it's just he's not on twitter like that's like that that's it and 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 i don't know i just anyway i just think that that um part of um the Part of the misunderst uh, or, or like part of the consequences i guess of privileging power in this like uh dynamic politically is it it gives um unequal and undeserved uh access and uh time and resources to ab- objectionable uh like views like right on the face that don't need to they don't need time and I don't know part of the reason is like objectivity and like whatever we talk about that stuff all the time but um yeah anyway I think that that like misunderstanding like if people understood if if the New York Times understood the amount of enjoyment that the right gets from how they cover Josh Hawley then I don't think they'd cover him that way
2: well no Ryan he would do it even more think? They, they that's the I mean I think Trump was right when he said you want me in office yes. because <laughs> I'm I'm essential for your ratings. Like I think I think they know exactly what they're doing when they cover the that st- like the, it's the I mean that's the whole the whole reason for our political morass is because the right has this monopoly on enjoyment while the left has a monopoly on knowledge, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's and so I I think that's humongous. I also think, I I wonder about this the way that psychoanalysis intervenes in the discourse of power just in the through this term phallus right mm-hmm. like that like I think isn't that the signifier of power, and what's interesting is the whole point is that that it, phallus is imposture, so it's the so it's i mean there is a kind of difficulty i think of reconciling power with understanding power with psychoanalysis because. As Mari, as you were saying earlier, like the only interventions really are about imposture and powerlessness, and you know, like like even this supposed signifier of power is the, immediately shown to be to be a signifier of imposture because it's the it's actually the most powerless signifier because it's the one that has not attached to a signified. It's a signifier without a signified. So I wonder if that if that's just you know I I. I I don't know about that. I just don't know what to think about that. Because I I think that on the one hand, that's it's that's a great thing for feminism that psychoanalysis gives you this way to see the imposture of the phallus. But then I wonder, and I think this would be a theoretical weakness, if it doesn't need to be supplemented when it comes to like attacking real like like for instance, like just patriarchal the patriarchal structure itself, like to 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 say that needs to be changed does psychoanalysis have the weapons in its own arsenal to say that needs to be changed?
1: Hmm. <clears throat> um, okay. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if I understood uh, everything you said, but okay. So uh, I, I, I started this whole session by saying that one of the things that um, makes it possible to think um, psychoanalysis together with feminism is precisely the fact that psychoanalysis is so great at deconstructing the the idea of the phallus as a signifier of power, and reveals it to to be uh, an imposter, kind of a, a, well, fraudulent position, basically, that it's actually all about castration, and just, like, sort of covering over castration that is common to all all of us, all human beings, uh, including men. So... um, so we 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 got that far, and then you asking, um, does psychoanalysis give us the resources for, yeah, go, go
2: actually go, toppling
1: actually toppling
2: right, like yeah,
1: um, well, to the ex- hmm, I mean, to the extent that? Uh, <laughs> to the extent that people start seeing through the the fact that there is no no big other, um, do, if enough people actually stopped believing believing in the big other, then there would be something that psychoanalysis would be doing in relation to patriarchy, because. Uh, one of the manifestations of the big other is heteropatriarchy. And if people started to understand that actually uh, the foundations for that particular version of the, of the big other are incredibly shaky or no, more or less non-existent, then, um, yeah, you you would in some ways topple uh, heteropatriarchy. But whether that's feasible or doable uh, outside of theoretical discussions is very... Hard to envision because, you know, even if people lose, uh, even if people lose their faith in the big other, does that mean that the big other stops functioning? Um, I'm not sure that it does, uh, just because we stop believing in it. Um, I
0: Santa Claus is still
1: delivering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and just just to um uh, add something to what Ryan was saying earlier but I I mean I think what you were getting at in some ways is what Todd is talking about a lot in his latest book The racist fantasy which is about robbing the in, enjoyment of the other so uh, taking mm-hmm. the enjoyment of the oppressed and and turning it into your own enjoyment
0: mm-hmm. in that
1: scenario that you were um or the dynamic that you were describing. Um, mm-hmm. and I guess my question to you was, uh, about you brought up cancel culture in that context, but mm-hmm. I um, didn't quite get the connection like which way you were going with that. Oh yeah.
0: Well, I think so. Um, things that we've said on this podcast before, um, I, that I, uh, that, uh, political correctness is a project to, uh, bring awareness and sympathy and understanding to positions that, that had not been understood before hundred percent on board. Only problem. It doesn't actually correct politics. Cancel culture as a project that under that, that, that unveils and and, and, and roots out people who are making enormous profit under the guise of, uh, I don't know, a skein of civility or whatever. I'm a hundred percent on board with that. Only problem, it doesn't actually cancel culture. Mm-hmm. But like the the my 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 thing my thing with I've said it on on, on before is that like uh, you cannot whack a mole enough bad actors <laughs> to stop the bad acting. It's 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 not it's not possible, right? And I and, and I and I under and I understand why it's it's appealing. It, it's sort of what it what it partakes in. I think is actually the. Seeming immediacy of Twitter as a actual platform, and mistaking that as a viable political form. So, like with Twitter, mm-hmm. things get popular and validated because of you know retweets and and you know likes and favorites and things like that. Um, and that's uh, does that's not a that's not a meaningfully that's not a meaningful po- political form. It it, it actually. Uh, it narrows things down to the particular and it never gets at a, a collective issue enough. Now, on the on the other side of that, like, of course, like m- movements like Me Too, Black Lives Matter started from hashtags. But the value of that is out in the street mm-hmm. and and it's it's not uh, it's not in the realm of digitality. And and I, so that's that's my thing. And and I also and, and so where in the comment I was making is that I think the the right quite often exploits this urge to because because there is so much objection and people are like rightly seeing so much like like rampant like structural inequality that like the the right um gets to play possum i think is what i was trying to mm-hmm, to, to, mm-hmm. Uh, to 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 get at and and what and in so doing they uh that's how they like it evince their enjoyment and it makes it seem like cancel culture is the real enemy and not the the right playing possum yeah and 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 that's and 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 i think that not seeing only seeing power and not seeing enjoyment i think is uh is, is a way that that obscures that structural dynamic that's that's what I was trying to get. at. Okay, great.
1: That that makes perfect sense. And uh, yeah, I mean, one of the one of the kind of appeals of cancel culture, which, by the way, I really do not like. Uh, but <laughs> one of the appeals is that it it seems to uh, be able to attack power directly, uh, power yeah. in the in the sense that people understand it. Um, and uh, what you are saying is that it doesn't actually do that. Uh, that it actually plays right into the hands of the The right that is taking incredible enjoyment out of this mm. spectacle that the left is kind of uh, putting up for them, and i mean mm. of course obviously and I'm sure you have already talked about this in earlier sessions, but i mean obviously one, one i mean to me one of the really sad things about uh, cancel culture is the fact that it's it it takes away uh, i mean it, it basically uh pits sort of left leaning thinkers against each other uh rather than um uh, you know looking for ways to enact change like you said on the streets it it mm-hmm. becomes this sort of a battle of like who is the most virtuous of of all of us uh, which is pointless and it doesn't uh, it, it doesn't get us any get us anywhere Ma-
0: Ma- mari i uh, i've called it before i don't know actually on the show or if said i've just said it in class it's a a race to the top of woke mountain yeah exactly it's is, 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 is unfortunate
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> yes. yeah
2: <laughs> yeah, I just just a slightly this is on the same thing, but slightly different. Mm-hmm. I wonder, I wonder, is your idea because you, you you've you said a few times, like deconstruct the gender binary. I wonder, is your idea of like, is your are you Beauvoirian feminist in the sense that the, the ideal of feminine? And I think this is I think you are because of what you said about Finland, that the ideal of feminism is to break down this gender difference. And once that's broken down, there's, there's no such thing as feminism, right? Like that's just, that's what it, that's what it has to do. Is that is would you call yourself that? Kind yeah, of
1: definitely. I want to get rid of feminism by getting rid of gender, basically, <laughs> or at least the gender binary. I mean, I, the only reason feminism is there, I mean, and that's why, like, when I was growing up in Finland, there was no discourse of feminism because no one paid any attention to gender. I mean, even the language doesn't have any gender to anything. Like, there's no... Uh, gendering even in the pronouns that like there's one pronoun for he or she so even the language doesn't recognize gender and so um my my sort of personal version of feminism has always been to deconstruct that binary so that you can be uh whatever it is that you are as a singularity of of your being you know I've written a book called the singularity of being and And I I very much, um, I would like to be able to see a world where uh, people are just kind of singular creatures. And uh, as I mean, you taught, you often um, describe what it means to be a singular creature in the way that I I mean. And it's not a pretty picture. I mean, it's often like you talk about distortion and dislocation and being ruptured and and, uh, (laughs) you're definitely not talking about a a kind of unitary, seamless type of individual who would be able to define themselves in any straightforward manner. And so I'm not looking for a collection of individuals in that kind of uh, normative manner. I'm looking for a collection of singularities that are all in one way or another totally, you know, I can't use the F word. So I mean like completely, just like uh, completely, uh, uh, you know, well, fucked up basically. Um, uh, it would be alone, uh, alone
0: in their other. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, I I would rather have a collection of singularities that are fucked up in one way or another than this completely artificial, uh, uh, you know, binarism of men and women that is supposed to tell us something about these two, uh, you know, categories of people. It's such a simplistic way of understanding people uh, that it may, it makes me completely crazy because it, it does injustice to, like everyone, uh not just women but also men. It simplifies everything. It it thinks that it knows more than it does. And um it it um <sighs> yeah, it's all about power without the underlying understanding of enjoyment that you have been talking about.
2: That's really interesting to me because, so for one thing, that's a great book by you. So, just to let everyone know, if they haven't read it. Um, but I think I, I think that, that that there are a lot of feminists who think we have to hold on to the to the feminine difference, right? And that's what feminism is. So it, it is interesting that this sort of sets you apart from. A, a, I, I know feminists who think that. I mean, not the one that I'm in a relationship with, but a lot that I know that think that that is, I mean, and I think a lot of this came out of France even, right? Like the, the, a certain notion of, so there was an American version like Carol Gilligan, and then there's this French version like Irre And I don't, I mean, maybe Kristeva to, to, maybe not to a lesser extent, but I don't know. Sisu for sure. So I wonder if that, if that, you know, that have you ever found yourself in a kind of a, like, in a bind on that? Or has that just been like, that's just been your position always. And, and you haven't budged. I long. have
1: not budged. I mean, I have taught all of these people, six Eric uh, Carol, Carol, Gilligan. Um, I've taught their positions in feminist theory classes. Um, but I have never agreed with them. I, 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 uh, I This is actually something I feel really strongly about. I I think that this attempt to hold on to a so-called feminine difference is completely ludicrous, because it is a matter of fixing a singularity into a collective type of, um, you know, whatness. Um, Is that, am I now doing it correctly? Like the socially socially imposed idea of femininity. I don't think that there's any way of uh, getting away from the fact that femininity is a social construct. And so if you're trying to bolster the feminine difference, you're just bolstering what the symbolic order has handed to you. And that uh, seems to me as a totally anti-feminist gesture. Uh, but that's just me. I understand that, that that's different. And I, I, I know that, that that comes partly from the fact that I grew up in a culture that pays no attention to gender. I mean, even now, when I, uh, the rare times I go and visit, I mean, you look at the government, it's like all these young women, uh, the prime minister is like a 36-year-old woman and her entire cabinet almost her entire cabinet is composed of women and someone like my father who is in in his early 80s doesn't think twice about it like it doesn't even occur to him to think about the fact that the government is pretty much all female so that's a much bigger deal
0: here like, <laughs> like that i remember i remember see, like when when she i remember this when when she became a, a prime minister is that that's the i'm sorry sorry my my ignorance of the the term so um yeah, I remember that was all over Reddit and and social media, and it was like like look at this, look at like this is a real, um this is a real feminist like anti patriarchal thing, and I think that is so it's so funny. Uh, I, I I wish I had thought to <laughs> ask you about this earlier because I I mean that that's a total it, it totally evinces um I, I think your your point. Yeah,
1: I mean when I go to Finland, no one no one thinks about you know. Uh, Marine, Marine as a as a as a I don't know young woman or at least that's not the discourse. I mean, people th- th- people talk about it as someone who is incredibly articulate, who never loses her cool at interviews. They they tend to respect her even if they politically disagree with her. But I have never read or heard anyone talk about the fact that um, there's something weird about. Her being a woman or so even so young uh, it just just isn't in the discourse and I mean uh, this is I think there's an example that I give in uh, the Venus Enemy book uh, that kind of crystallizes this this whole dynamic which is so different from an American dynamic when it comes to gender when I was young, like i don 't know seven or eight or something, uh, my parents said that I had to do something because we had guests coming that day, and I had to contribute to like getting ready and i remember that they gave me a, a choice of tasks and the two tasks that i was i was given were either do the dishes or chain put the winter tires into the into my father's truck i'm not sure why he needed the winter tires right then but he did um and I remember that I chose putting the winter tires into the truck because that seemed much more interesting to me. But it didn't even occur to my father, who was way younger than obviously than he is now. But it never even occurred to either of my parents that this would be any kind of a gendered uh, choice. <laughs> so many years later, um, I'm driving on I, uh, I what is it I ninety five close uh, somewhere in Maine and. Uh, my boyfriend and I got a flat, and um, I was changing the tire because I knew how to do that from how, you know having learned as a child. And the police came and started giving my boyfriend such a hard time because uh, you know he was letting his "quote unquote" lady change the tire, and I was just like, "Oh my god, like go go away!" <laughs> so this is, the, this, this is the fundamental fundamental cultural difference, um, which I think has led me to this particular version of feminism.
2: That's pretty great. Mm. That's a great story. Both of those stories are great. I wonder. Um, I wonder about that. That so you, you know our our joint friend, Wendy Lochner has on her email. She goes, it says at the bottom, I support, I use the pronoun they universally for everyone. And I wonder about that. Like, like it's a, I, I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, she's trying to, I think she's trying to do what you're talking about, right? Like she's trying to find a way to undo the gender binarism, just even linguistically. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, uh, uh, that sounds right, and uh, it it actually makes perfect sense to me, having grown up speaking a language that only had one pronoun, uh, because it immediately, I don't know, it just makes a difference in everyday uh, everyday life and everyday language. You're not you're not immediately gendering people. Um, You're just talking about hen. and you have sometimes you have no idea which gender hen is for a long time in the conversation until, until like a proper name, like a first name shows up and then uh, you usually know. But because uh, the name, uh, actual first names do, do tend to be mostly gendered, not always, but mostly. But yeah, the pronoun is not and it, it does make a difference, it feels to me.
2: Yeah, I, I actually was thinking, like, maybe in, in, in kind of in a psychoanalytic way, we should have
1: it. Yeah,
2: because it would be the, you know, like, because that's the translation of das s And so it's like, like th- then it really would be you're immortal within your you're singular, right? Like if it's the it is that's what you're like. If it's the id that's what it's referring to i i, I always have like yeah that. that's uh that's actually i
1: always invariably use it uh, as the pronoun in my writing when i'm referring to human subjectivity i never uh i mean it's possible that i have sometimes said something like he she and they but usually i'm always i always just say it for that very reason and i, I mean and it's a it's a it's a, it's a like you already uh, implied it's kind of a much more profound statement about human subjectivity than than it might appear to be because as you said it is linked to the id and the unconscious and the idea that what you really are um Or who you really are, I should say. (laughs) It has to do. Listen, it's the three. It's the three of us against whatness. That's what's happening. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. that's that's what's happening. uh, thank you so much.
1: That that really clarifies it. Okay. (laughs) So yeah, it has to do with the wholeness of you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I just I I I think that's really I, I I often wonder why Freud got trans, why does S got translated as it and not as it, you know, like I think that would have really made a difference in how people understood psycho. Mm, yeah.
0: I think the other two, the other two are pretty good, right? Ego instead of I, because I is would, it's too, too simplistic. Right. It's too confusing. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, over I though, not the worst, but, but right. still partakes of the same problem, but yeah, it would have been, That'd have been preferable. It would have been good. It
2: would have been interesting. Yeah. But I mean, the problem is with all these translation questions. Freud approved it, right? So, wow. Well, so, well, you know, what, like what, that's what was prefer- going on?
0: Why, why did he? Did because he, he thought it was easier? I don't know. Maybe he just deferred. You know, he deferred to straight. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Or, I don't know. Or maybe didn't have enough of a, a, a. I mean, I don't know how good his English was, but maybe he didn't actually. Um, n- like make that connection if he had said to himself what we're just saying you know that there is this connection between it and the unconscious uh and like singularity if he had made that connection maybe he would have insisted on it but maybe he didn't like know the language well enough to really think that through
2: yeah, that's a good point. Maybe he just, you know, all he did, all he knew was reading Dickens. I was just going to say, he read
0: Dickens, and he, yeah, he has this great letter. He has this great letter to Martha. I don't know if they were married at this time, but he, uh, I think it was uh, reading. It was after reading Bleak House, something like that. He said he found it um, hard to speak in German instead of quote Dickens's. Well. So yeah, I know it's great. It's like kind of sweet. Like if I, I like I like these things that make him seem more, um, I don't know, more, like more contemporary or just like, like a person that got like wrapped up in fiction. Like, that's just like, it's cute. I don't know. I like it a lot. Uh, So, so
2: Mari, just to, just to kind of wrap up, I wonder, so for you, like the formulas of sexuation, they just, I mean, I, I, I have my own kind of thing with them, but for you, that's really, it doesn't speak to you. That's not a part of psychoanalysis that you're you you think is important? No. Yeah, no,
1: right. yeah, it, that is fair. That is a fair characterization, <laughs> and we ca- kind of promised me that you wouldn't ask me about uh, those specifically. <laughs> yeah. but,
2: I uh, know, I know, i just wanted. to end wow. with that. Just what, because. What a piece of shit!
1: I'm Just like you know. I, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. no you're I, not I, asking me specifically you're asking indirectly. Uh, no, it's it's a it's a, it's a yeah. good question. Um, I feel like I kind of uh, inadvertently. Um, insulted some people whom I really respect, uh, colleagues of mine whom I really respect, because in another podcast, I said that people who um, focus on the formula formulas of sexuation are just, you know, wasting their time. And then I was like, Oh, my God, I can't believe I just said that. Because I mean, I know people (laughs) who have written amazing books, you know, focusing on that particular you know, paradigm in the con, and and I don't want to I don't want to discredit their work, but it is true that that has never spoken to me, and that has to do uh, precisely with everything that I have been saying today, right. which is that I just don't believe in gender uh, in the same way as some other people do. I don't believe in uh, femininity or masculinity. Uh, I I feel like they are uh, kind of like. The phallus, like they are signifiers without a referent, and that we we are just kind of inventing these referents for them, and so it feels like a reification of a system that I want to dissociate myself from. When people focus on the sexuation crafts, but but I you know I don't want to I don't want to say that that's useless because obviously it's doing something. Uh, interesting, because enough of people in Lacanian theory have been focusing on that to uh, make me understand that they 're getting something out of it, uh, something that I am not seeing, and that that is my cultural blindness uh, there's something about maybe about femininity and uh, the impulse to preserve femininity that I am not seeing uh, and I have to say that I am somehow like actively really uh, angry about. Uh, this whole discourse of femininity in the, in the American context, because I feel like I personally, personally fail at it like completely. I'm such a failure. Like I have no feminine mystique. I'm totally (laughs) straightforward. I do. (laughs) I'm just like, so not like a a quote unquote real woman. I've actually had boyfriends tell me that I, I don't act like a real woman. Um, often in sexual context they're just confused like how can you be so straightforward you should be more like mysterious and more resistant or whatever and i'm like what i'm just enjoying myself like get with the program but (laughs) yeah so yeah it's just my particular like I, i don't like i don't like femininity or masculinity as concepts
2: do you have a seminar that you like best?
1: Of uh, Lacan's seminars, um,
2: yeah, yeah, I really
1: yeah. like um, seminars seven, eight, ten, and twenty-three.
2: I was thinking you were going to say seven. yeah, I was yeah. You were
1: say well, dusting—that's yeah. that's yeah. yeah. my thing. Yeah, <laughs> I know right. you already talked about right. that with Rick, so we can't redo that. But no, but, that's my thing. But Mari, this
0: is. This is so important. We said on our earlier we said on our earlier episode. I, I think we said this. I don't know if we said this to each other, but um, we think se- we think seven is the most two Lacanians, Seven is the most important seminar because you either think it explains everything or you think it explains nothing. And there's there's no like that like that's it. Like if there's a like I don't I don't care about other kinds of uh, like like ways of dividing Lacanians. It's really what do you make of Seminar yeah, like, Seven? That's,
1: that's great. Yeah, I guess I'm in the camp that thinks that it explains everything. So <laughs>
2: Excellent. Yeah, it's really funny. So like I I, I mean when we, when we were having that when we had Slavoj come on, I asked him about R- Rick Muthby, of course, thinks seven too and and I asked Lavoy and he all he said was one word he goes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, he that
1: said. that explains a lot because I mean my my Lacan <laughs> I mean I I love a lot of Žižek's uh, uh, work and I teach it constantly and my students worship it and I think that he's a really great reader of Lacan but I also o- often think that my Lacan is very different from his Lacan and I I can, I can see that it has to do with the fact that I really like seminar seven there's no question about that and uh I read Lacan before I let uh, before I read Zizek I'm one of those very rare, pe- rare people who who managed to read Lacan. that is rare <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And I, so I think that I I developed my uh, my understanding of Lacan well before I read any Zizek so I, I've never given up on my appreciation of seminar seven even though I really um uh, I also really like Zizek's work a lot.
2: So You know what's interesting about that, Mari, is that that's true of Rick, too. Uh-huh. So Rick knew, Rick knew Lacan before he read Slavoy. Hmm. And, and so it's interesting that both of you esteem Seminar 7 Rick Booth, yeah, I'm yeah. talking about. Just so <laughs> <laughs> so not, I'm, I'm telling that to everybody, just so that they, I'm not just so throwing names out in the in the in the air. But um, but I think that that's interesting. Like maybe if you're, it, it, it's like you get your lenses get slavoid, and you totally see, totally you, you don't see seminar 7's importance. Yeah, I uh, I,
1: I would yeah. definitely say that. Um, uh, that's how I have felt about a lot of my graduate students who will uh, sometimes admit uh, that they have read, like, no Lacan at all, even though they talk about Lacan very knowledgeably. Uh, But it's all all from Zizek. Um, I know you are familiar with the phenomenon, so... (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was me.
1: for a while. <laughs> okay. so I'm,
2: I'm not only familiar, I'm really familiar. You lived it. <laughs> I lived that. Yeah, yeah. Like I tried to read the Sheridan translation of the A. Cree as a grad student. I'm just like, this is just nonsense. And then I read Sublime Object and I went back to everything and it was fine. So, so it was really, it really made every difference for me. So that's, it's interesting that that your grad students have Definitely. Out that same
1: feeling. Yeah, whereas yeah. I sat in Paris uh with the the long original version, the thousand page version of Echette in French and I read it cover to cover um in my tiny little apartment in Paris. So and then like years later started reading uh Žižek. So
2: I don't know. We're not.
1: <laughs> I, so <laughs> I was <laughs> thinking the same thing. I was like,
0: man, I still still struggle with excited, You know, like so. I can't, like, uh,
1: yeah. oh, come on, you're way better looking yes, than I am. We've talked about this uh, before. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Well,
2: the, this is an episode where the, our lesson is really easy. It's like read as many of Marie's yeah. books.
1: As <laughs> well, yeah. I think that uh, yeah. the lesson is actually uh, read as many of uh, Todd's book as possible. They're all amazing. Um, uh, I haven't, yeah, nice no, you, they're but. so good. Uh, and I, I teach them every semester, basically.
2: Well, I pity your no, students. No, they, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, all right, everyone, over and out. Over and out, Todd. Okay. Thank you so much, Mara. Thank you.